Well, thanks. You're welcome. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to record this. Um, yeah, you know, this, this is great. I'm really excited about doing these. I just started. I think you're my third person. So okay. um, one of the things I was going to say is uh, if we say any at the end of it, if you say anything, I wish I hadn't said that you you have the final edit. OK, so, so don't feel so feel to free talk freely, knowing that uh, you will edit out anything that I say that's incriminating. Well, no, you know, normally <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen, but you know, if there's something you think oh, I shouldn't have said that, but anyway, and uh, would there be, is there anything that you want to talk about or bring up? Um, no, I think if you just ask me questions, I would yep. be happy to go with that. No, that's what I'll do. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I think we'll shoot for about 90 minutes. If that's fine, that's long, but I'm finding, um, it's a good way to really, uh, here, let me close my, I have about 80, 84 minutes. <laughs> okay. We'll, uh, we'll, 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 uh, cut it back. Let me make sure I've got my, I have a meeting at 1130, but I'm only five minutes away. Okay. Let me just shut off my, uh, I think the last time I had my, uh, outlook open, it kept pinging all the time, but, but anyway, okay. Let me get started. Hold on just a second. What happened to my, I just, uh, I think I shut down. Let me go in. I think I shut down all my questions. How are things going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Did you get of... your book done? I'm close. Okay. I'm, close. I'm not satisfied, but I'm close. Well, they say you're probably never satisfied. That's true. That's why they have to do multiple takes, I guess. Okay. They well, do, I'll, they call uh... it a re-edit or yeah okay well let's get i'll introduce you um welcome everyone my name is tom pritchard and welcome to the marriage champions podcast where i talk with marriage champions about the habits practices tools skills marriage champions can use to have great marriages and families but also help other marriages and families today my guest is bob Leinberger. bob is pastor of adult ministry at plymouth covenant church in plymouth minnesota uh your screen is flick, flick, it was is it? flickering. I don't know if it is. It's, yeah, it, it pops up and off. I don't know. Um, can you hear me okay? I can hear you, but maybe, maybe go out and come in again because it, it's uh, okay. constantly flickering. Okay. Is that better? Yep. I don't see any flickering. Okay. I'll start over. Uh, welcome everyone. My name is Tom Pritchard. 
And welcome to the Minnesota, excuse me. Welcome everyone. My name is Tom Pritchard and welcome to the Marriage Champions podcast where I talk with marriage champions about the habits, practices, tools, skills marriage champions can use to have great marriages and families, but also help other marriages and families. Today, my guest is Bob Leinberger. Bob is pastor of adult ministry at Plymouth Covenant Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Bob oversees a very active marriage ministry along with doing marriage counseling and preaching in his church. Thanks for joining me today, Bob. I'm so glad I get the privilege of hanging out with you, Tom. Great. Uh, Bob, before we jump in our conversation, I noticed on your church's website that you list 1 Samuel as your favorite book of the Bible. Why is that? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think First Samuel is about leadership, and I think it's about God's criteria for leadership. I think what ends up happening in that book is it isn't really about Goliath and things like that. Goliath just is a minor character comparing and contrasting two different leaders, one who has a heart for God and one who wants to look good on the outside. I think that you get to see David and Saul compared, and there's probably six or seven things that happen throughout the book. And uh, like, for example, both of them make massive mistakes. One takes ownership and the other one blames everyone else. One of them's interested in God getting the glory. The other one's only interested in how they end up looking and what their reputation's about. So I think it's a great book. I love it. It's my favorite book in the Bible. Does it have any application to marriage and family? It certainly does. <laughs> it certainly does. Uh, if you make mistakes, which we all do, it's how you respond afterwards that determine the difference. Yeah, well, great. Uh, well, let's, let's get into your background a little bit. Um, yeah, what, what's, what's been your journey to bringing you to this place? How long have you been at Plymouth Covenant and you're married and children and those sorts of things? I've been at Plymouth Covenant since the end of uh, 1998, so it's getting close to being 23 years. Wow. So um, my journey is, um, uh, I say it that I'm a fellow traveler on the road to misery, and what <laughs> makes me so passionate about marriage is, is I know what it's like to want to have a good relationship and it remain elusive. I know what it's like to, with every fiber of my being, want to be a good dad, to be a good husband, and not being able to accomplish that. And then I know on the other side of being able to experience a satisfying relationship that um, honors God. And um, that's why I'm so passionate. I'm so passionate because it remained elusive for me. Um, there were some things I was doing that was completely undermining my relationship. Uh, I've narrowed it down to three that I did that were really bad, but obviously I was I had quite a few more than that. Uh, for one, what I used to do is I would defend myself. Um, I grew up in a family where my mom and dad got divorced early and there were some really hurtful things said to me. And so I developed a way of handling life and that I protected my heart and I didn't want to be what my mom said she would say to me when she was drunk sometimes is that you'll never amount to anything wow. so what I would do is I um, didn't want to be the person my mom predicted I would be so whenever my wife was sad frustrated disappointed or upset 
I could not handle it. So I would try to prove to her that that wasn't true. It wasn't an effective strategy. In fact, caused us a lot of chaos. Um, besides defending myself, my second go-to was withdrawing. So first he would try to share something with me. I defend myself and that didn't work. Then I would withdraw and I would pull away and that made it worse. And eventually if when both of those strategies didn't work, then I would get frustrated and then I would express my anger. And then I would say stuff like, Hey, if you think I'm so bad, let me tell you about you. All three of those strategies completely undermined my own happiness, made my wife disconnected from me and it didn't make it very well, didn't make us have a really good relationship. Fortunately, God was gracious to me and he helped me to be able to learn that what I was doing contributed greatly to the chaos in our relationship. And once I started changing it to my shock and surprise, uh, things started changing and things started getting much better. And my wife wasn't as um, unwilling to share with me. And then once we started to connect at a heart level, life started to become really fun. Well, how did, what did you think? Were you, when you went into marriage, what were you thinking? It's just going to work out or did you think much about what was going to happen or did once you got in it all these things started to, you you can you can run but you can't hide in a sense in a marriage relationship mm -hmm. i uh thought that my wife was an incredible listener and she was a wonderful person and that she would be able to accept me like I was, care about me, and everything would work perfectly. But what I didn't realize at the time was that marriage, especially good marriages, take a lot of work. They don't just happen. And there were a lot of things that uh, undermined our success. And I was shocked. Uh, I had no idea how hard it would be, how difficult it would be, and how unable to make things better I would be on my own. So what were some of the first things that started to, uh, did it happen, start happening right away in your marriage? Or did you, after you got in a while, these things start to crop up and you, your reactions, the things you had, avoidance, running, whatever, they started to show up after. What, what happened right away was that I, uh, we had some negative patterns and we were unable to complete conversations and uh, we would have what I would call minor arguments and skirmishes, but we never came to any kind of resolution. And over time, those built up. And having the overwhelming feeling that we weren't gonna be able to make things better because we couldn't really solve things helped us to not talk about certain things. We, For the most part, we did pretty well. We had a pretty good marriage. Uh, we really enjoyed each other, but there was the underlying tension that came. What really revealed the cracks in our foundation was um, we had eight month and one day stretch where everything came undone. My wife's um, dad had a heart attack and it was really stressful and really painful and we did everything we could, but the doctors were unable to get the liquid off of his lungs and then he ended up dying and then because I'm a pastor, I did the funeral for my father-in-law. And before we even had a chance to recover from that, my brother was killed in a car crash. And then after my brother died, then my wife's mom had uh, a brain aneurysm. And uh, before I even knew it hit me, I had just done my third funeral. And then 
uh, I got a call from my dad's wife saying that you probably should come down and see your dad because he's not doing well. And I had no idea he was even struggling because he had had cancer, but we had thought he had beat it. So I got down there and my dad, who was one of the strongest people I ever met, went from about 200 pounds to under 100 pounds. And uh, he died within the week. So we had eight months and one day, four people died unexpectedly. And then we ended up getting our niece who came in and lived with us. And between those five major factors, all of the uh, chaos, we were unable to navigate it. And it became really difficult for us because my wife was sad, disappointed. She had lost her parents. And the more she had expressed her frustration, the more personal I took it. And the more I felt like she was attacking my character and the more I defended myself, the more I withdrew and then the more I would attack her. And it got pretty difficult for a while. Um, but fortunately, we were able to uh, develop better strategies. We were able to learn to take responsibility for ourselves. We were able to learn how to repair the damage that had been caused and connect at a heart level. And like I said earlier, I am a fellow traveler on the road to misery. Now you were a pastor at this time. Uh, were you thinking, my goodness, what's going on? I mean, did you feel like I have to have a certain persona or was that not even entering your mind because you were just realizing the realities of the challenge? Fortunately, we have a church that, um, it is about being authentic and being real. So it definitely entered my mind, but it wasn't the driving force. Uh, part of what happens in ministry is you have this pressure to perform and to be something that is beyond what you have. And our church graciously, it's gracious and it's so cool that I get to be part of a church that cares as much about people as what they produce. So. I don't know if I would have been in a different environment if I would have, it could have been pretty bad. Um, so uh, there wasn't a lot of pressure for me here. Um, and uh, I had to, it, the hardest obstacle we had wasn't the church. It was me um, realizing that I was my biggest marriage problem. It was me admitting that it was me. Literally, uh, I'm not proud of it, but I was convinced that it was my wife and I literally did really dumb stuff. Like I would keep notes of what she said so that I could prove to myself that it wasn't me. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, it wasn't helpful. It caused further damage to my own soul and to our relationship. So... Those are some pretty difficult days, and yet God has redeemed it in so many powerful ways. Um, having the fact that we lived with my, our niece lived with us, and um, she had a birth mom and a stepmom, and the chaos that comes with parenting a kid that has other people involved, I would have had no idea how to navigate any of that stuff if we hadn't gone through those situations. I know what it's like to feel hopeless and I know what it's like to really struggle. So God has taken those things and given me a path.
passion for relationships to where um, it's kind of what wakes me up in the morning and what I love doing. So uh, who knew that God would be able to take everything that was bad and turn it towards good. And I think a lot of people have got to experience the benefits of my misery. Mm. Well, if I'd be interested in maybe drilling down, what was it that got you to realize, well, it's not just, it's not my wife, it's me that needs to change. Was there? Um, I was in the process of meeting with a counselor and the counselor was really good. And he was great at listening and great at validating and great at understanding. And, and after quite a while of listening and validating and understanding, he gave me an assignment. And the assignment was, I want you to pretend for two weeks that um, you contribute to part of this chaos. And I don't want you to think about, do anything other than look at your part. So for the next two weeks, what I want you to do is I want you to write down how you contribute to the chaos. And uh, he knew from me that he needed to give me a creative way of doing that because I was pretty entrenched. And it was almost as if my identity was at stake because I was, I was not wanting to be what my mom said. So the idea that I was failing at my most important task and it was me that was causing the failure was really difficult for me to overcome. So for two weeks, I just started praying and saying, okay, God, what's my part? And it's amazing what God did in that time. Uh, he really was able to graciously help me to see that, that uh, I played a significant role. And even afterwards, um, I, it took me a while to really understand the depth of the chaos that I caused by what I did. Um, I literally believed that being defensive was somebody had to attack in order for you to defend. And what I've learned since then is that there's nothing anyone can say or do that makes you need to protect your heart and defend yourself. You can clearly set boundaries. And I'm not saying anything that, about going into abusive behavior or anything like that. But I'm saying it when somebody accuses you of something and somebody says something about that, you can receive what they say before you respond to it and you can care about what they're saying and acknowledge it without having to be defensive and it was me i did it i was wrong and i had to get in a place where i was able to take ownership of it and it was as if something changed because before i would listen defensively and and i would kind of have this sense that okay go ahead and talk to me and and after we talked an hour, I would have this attitude like, are you done yet? Okay, I've listened to you. And, uh, but it, was, it wasn't until I was listening with the intent of receiving and caring and understanding and having compassion that those conversations started to change. As long as I was listening to make my point or listening to prove that what she was saying wasn't true, I wasn't listening. I wasn't receiving. I wasn't hearing and I wasn't understanding. And I've since learned later that all of us have a relational alarm system that assesses the other people when we're in any conversation. We're asking the questions, are you available? Are you receptive? Do you care? Are you listening? And my wife's relational alarm system was sounding saying, he's not paid attention to me. And it caused all kinds of chaos in her. And it was only when I wasn't listening to make a point or to prove her wrong 
that I started listening with the intent of understanding and then offering compassion that we started to really break through. And that has set me on a journey that has really, uh, for me to really desire how to learn how to listen. And it's changed everything. It's changed the way I relate to other people. Um, my daughter was saying to me the other day, uh, something that I probably never dreamed of receiving back when things were chaotic, but she was like, dad, um, I love the way you listen. Could you help me do that better? And who doesn't want to hear that from your kids, right? Yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, let's talk about that maybe a bit about effective listening. I, I noticed I went through your marriage prep course outline. And one of the topics is effective listening. And I mean, the role that plays in a marriage, is that kind of the starting point in a relationship is being able to be a good listener? And how do you, how do you develop that if you're not, if you're, I notice it myself, oftentimes I'm, I'm th when they're talking, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say in response. And how do you move out of that? I'll kind of give you a little bit of my journey um, is learning what effective listening is and what it isn't. And the best way I know how to describe it now is if you think of listening in terms of six different levels, the lowest level of listening is what I call apathetic or dismissive listening. It's like, I don't even care what anyone says. Most people don't go to that lower level because they have enough care for people. Uh, the second level of listening is not really listening. It is when you deny, dismiss, disregard what somebody says. It's where someone says something and before it even gets in, you just push it out. Um, the third level of listening, it's a little bit higher than the other two, but it's not actually listening. It's when you defend yourself. It's when you're trying to prove that they're wrong, that there's something that's going against that. You don't actually start listening until um, what I call um, invite and invite and especially it's pretty easy to listen to somebody telling you you're great or telling you that you're doing things really well or you're successful but when somebody is saying something that you wish you never had to hear when someone is saying something that's difficult uh, you're only listening when you're inviting when you're inviting more information um, the fourth level of listening it's it's a powerful level it's when you hear something you invite it and then what you do is you sit with it and you pursue it even more you say things like tell me more i really want to understand and you're listening with your heart the highest level of listening is what i call understanding and you haven't listened to a person until you repeat back what they say and they give you the deep sigh or the nod that you really get it. Uh, understanding is when you not only understand what they're saying, but you understand the heart of what it is they're genuinely trying to communicate. And you can't hear someone's heart until you're in your heart. And that's kind of how, what I learned over time and what I try to help people with is that there's four things that you can practically do. Um, what we tend to do whenever we're in a conversation and whenever somebody's talking to us, what we do is uh, we argue the facts, deny, dismiss, or disregard the experience, and then undermine the meaning. In every single conversation that people have, there's three things that are really important. There's the facts, there is the experience, and there's the meaning. Uh, most people fixate on the wrong thing. 
what most people do is they fixate on the facts. If you were to take a hundred people and you were to give them um, the exact same experience, for example, let's say two people are on a date, um, the guy walks 35 feet in front of the girl on the way to the movie theater. Okay, they get out of the car, he blazes into the theater and she doesn't. You could have as many as 95 different experiences based on that. What most people do is, I call it reactive listening, is someone says something, they argue the facts, they try to prove every single point wrong. Then what they do is they deny, dismiss, disregard as someone talks about the experience, and then they try to undermine the meaning. What I would say actual listening is, and here's the principle that I've learned, is that you have to receive what someone says before you respond to it. You have to receive it. You have to let it in. And not only do you have to receive it, but you have to demonstrate to the other person that you've received it before they will be able to release it. The way that you do that is when someone's talking, instead of getting caught up over all of the facts, just care about the person. Just care about what that person. There is somebody on the other side of this conversation that matters, that's important, and I'm just going to care about it. Then you try to acknowledge and validate the experience. Uh, you can't always validate it because you don't agree with it sometimes, but you can always acknowledge and acknowledging is seeing how a rational person came to that conclusion. Don't ever say the words, I see how a rational person came there, but what you're doing is in your own mind and acknowledging, oh, wow, so this is what happened. When I was walking in front of you, you felt like you were alone and I didn't even really care about you. And I um, was so focused on getting there that we weren't even on a date together and you had to do it alone. Just, just acknowledging it, caring about it. And then the, the highest one is understanding. And you haven't really heard something until you understand exactly what they experienced and what it meant. Every time somebody has an experience, something goes into their heart and they, they know what it is they felt. And if someone denies it, dismisses it, disregard it, pushes it deeper and cements it. Every time they get that experience, what they do is do three things. They assess a person's motives. They make judgments if it's good or bad, and they determine their response. For example, what somebody do is what they did is they intended to hurt me or they wanted to cause me pain, or they were just trying to prove to me that I didn't even really matter. Um, then they uh, determine, was it good? Was it bad? Was this hurtful? Was it not? And then they determine the response. And the response could be, I need to protect myself from them. The response could be that, um, I have to be careful because they will reject me. And I would say that listening is actually a journey to discover what's going on in the other person. And you get to figure out what it is that they, what it is that they experienced and what it is that meet that it means. Uh, especially when I talk to guys, what I try to help them is most guys want to solve the problem, but they solve the wrong problem. It's about the sequence of time. It is about solving the problem, but it isn't about solving the problem that people are presenting immediately because you don't even know what it is. If you try to solve a problem before a person feels heard or understood, they will resist you and often it will become about power. So listening is complicated, but really it comes down to this. Am I listening with my heart to understand? Am I demonstrating that I care about the person? So here's the order care about the person, acknowledge and validate, 
understand what they say, and then you can either offer compassion or maybe even be able to suggest a solution. But if you do any of that stuff before, uh, like one of the things I say to um, people is never say understand. Um, because I understand just means can we get on, can we move on? So you're better off to say this is I want to understand and it matters to me what it is you're experiencing. And um, take as much time as you need because I want to understand what you're saying. We don't always have that much time to be able to take unlimited amount of time. But what I found is usually it takes a lot less time to listen attentively because you get someplace. Um, when I was listening defensively, we would have conversations for hours and never go anywhere. So, so what, how do you listen with your heart? Um, are there kind of practical things one can do when you're encountering the other person and, and getting into a discussion or going back and forth? Is it hot? Do you picture the person a certain way? Do you, for, for me, there were two things I had to do is, um, I had to learn how to stop being defensive. And uh, I also had to learn how to manage and regulate my own emotions. Um, as long as I was taking things personally, and as long as my emotions were getting high and my amygdala was getting hijacked and I didn't have cognitive incapacitation, which basically meant I didn't have access to my brain. Because when somebody was saying something about me I never wanted to hear, it was so stressful to me that I couldn't even really process it. So first I had to kind of learn how to manage my own emotions and really managing your emotions. It's just about allowing God to put you in touch with what you should do. I think God gives us emotions for two reasons. One is because it gives us a much fuller experience. It's the difference between a black and white TV and an HD color surround sound experience. So emotions are give, given uh, to us by God, not to punish us, but to be able to experience the fullness of life and then put us in touch with what we should do. The problem often occurs is when we see someone crying and we see someone sad, and if you're not in touch with your emotions, then you get angry at them for being sad. You get frustrated with them for being angry because they're making you experience things that you never wished you would have to experience and you don't know what to do with it. So this is a long process, but over time you can learn how to manage your own emotions so that you can care about someone. Two of my favorite verses are one, is a person who cannot manage her emotions in Proverbs chapter 25 is like a city without walls. Another verse that's just as powerful is a person who can control their emotions is more powerful than a warrior that conquers a city. And what I've learned over time is that if I can't control my emotions, I am at the mercy and, and I'm vulnerable to anything anyone else says to me. The second piece of it is beyond being able to manage your emotions is to be able to learn how to stop protecting your heart. And the thing that I've learned that has been super helpful to me is to learn how to listen to the language of longing instead of accusations. Most people do not know how to express what it is they want in terms of their longings. They express it in terms of their accusations. Let me give you an example. What a person might say is um, that what they really want is their spouse to be more connected to them. They want their spouse to feel like they're in a partnership. They want to feel connected and close. But what they'll say is that you prioritize everyone else but me. 
everyone else gets the best of you and all I ever get is the crap, okay? Most people, when they hear accusations, all they hear is they're telling me I'm a failure, they're telling me I stink, they're telling me I'm a bad dad, they're telling me I'm an awful mom. Instead of behind every complaint, behind every accusation is a much deeper longing. And once you learn how to listen to the language of longings, once you learn how to listen to what's going on under the surface, then you don't have to take it personally because it's always about them anyway. Every single time you talk to a person, they're expressing what it is they've experienced, what it, it, what it means to them. They're expressing what's going on inside of them. And if you make it about you, it will always become about you. You will not only make yourself miserable, but it'll be very difficult for other people to have a conversation. So it's a, a long process. Um, you have to stop protecting yourself from an enemy. And you have to start seeing somebody as an ally and a teammate and a person that we can accomplish things together. It, it's a mindset. It's the way that you view them. It's instead of it being they're trying to prove to me I'm bad. So what is it that's really going on inside of them? And it's a shift because when you can shift understanding what's happening with them, then you can have compassionate. Then you can uh, care about what it is they're saying because they matter to you. And that's how you get to your heart. You have to get to your heart by stop protecting it and start putting your energy and your compassion into what they're saying and what they experience. People can tell. People can tell when you're listening to prove them wrong or deny what they say, or when you're listening to understand and have compassion. Well, go back. Uh, uh, you talked about emotions, understanding your own emotions. So let's say you're in a conversation with your spouse or somebody else, and you, you, you run into some emotion from them that you react to. Um, how do you get a handle on your own emotions? How do you understand them and not allow them to kind of get in the way? Um, for me, it was a journey of discovery. Um, we'll talk about a couple of them. One, one emotion is anger. Um, anger is always a secondary emotion. Um, anger is um, about the other person not what's really going on inside of you. What ends up happening is something is said, and, and especially for guys, guys usually have uh, two emotions that they, they, they're fluent in and the rest of them are really difficult. One of them is I'm fine. The other one is I'm angry. And a guy can go from fine to angry in just a minute. What anger does is it gets it off of me and blames someone else for what's going on. The reason I'm whatever, the reason I got mad, the reason I said something, the reason I did something is what they did. If you go deeper than anger, usually it's sadness or fear or uh, some other deeper emotion going on inside of you. Um, for example, um, if you can learn to hear, and I talked about this a few minutes ago, is that if there's a little girl and um, she is really sad, and she's crying, what you do is you go up to her and you comfort her. God hardwired us with what to do with that emotions. The problem is, is when your wife is sad and she's crying, 
as a guy, it can make you feel like a failure and make you feel inadequate. And those feelings of being a failure are so painful for you that you have to get it off of you to someone else. And that's how you know that you're not connected with your emotions. If you know what the emotions are, for me, I had to actually write them down and I had to think about what they were and learn. I'm pretty fluent in emotions now. And in fact, I sit with people that cry all day long. And in fact, there's been days where people have cried more than an entire box of Kleenex in my office. And I'm totally okay with it now because I know how to be in my own emotions and I know how to care about somebody else's emotions. The problem, like, like um, oftentimes what happens to people is, let's say something bad happens or somebody's sad and, and they're in the hospital and they end up losing someone really important to them. If you don't know how to manage your emotions, then you have to make them feel better in order for them to be around you. And that isn't, it isn't loving it, and it, it, it's not like intentional. It's not like people are doing that on purpose. They just don't know any better. I mean, when, whenever you see somebody that just lost someone and they're pumping them with Bible verses or trying to make them feel better or telling them it's going to be okay, that isn't what a person needs. What a person needs is somebody to care about how awful it is with what they're experiencing. So if your own emotions and somebody else is sad, you can just have compassion for their sadness and you can sit with it. The Bible says it this way, it's mourn with those who mourn and celebrate with those who celebrate. Our job is to be present with a person wherever they're at without having to change it. When you have to change it, it makes it really difficult for other people. I, I know what I'm talking about. It's kind of complicated. And I didn't learn it over a week or a month. It's been a process of years, but I'm convinced anyone can learn how to manage their emotions significantly better. But it's a journey that takes time to be able to get there. Are there um, a couple questions? Are there resources or places you'd recommend people go to to begin to understand that? And when you say manage your own emotions, is it first recognizing your own emotions and knowing why you're feeling angry, or or how would you how do you journey or how do you process that? Yeah, there, there definitely are resources. In fact, I have a, a book here in my office. Um, this is the where I got introduced to it. Uh, it's called, You Don't Have to Take It Anymore. Turn Your Resentful, Angry, Emotional, Abusive Relationship into a Compassionate, Loving One. It's by a guy named Steven Stonsny. And what he does, he does anger management around the world and uh, what he basically says is it's all about compassion and you have to identify what's going on and he'll actually take you through multiple different steps to be able to help you get there. Um, I think you can learn it. For me, I had to be able to recognize what the emotion was so that I could prepare myself in advance so that when I experienced, I knew what to do. Um, I would say that a person that can regulate your emotions can respond productively in difficult situations within seconds. Learning how to manage your emotions isn't sitting with them forever and just letting your emotions overwhelm you. It's learning how to get in touch with what your response should be. For example, uh, rejection is something that we feel. And most people, when they feel rejected, they do one or two things. They either get really angry and blame the other person for how dare you do that to me, 
or they go internal and then they withdraw and pull away. Let's say a husband approaches his wife and he wants to be physically intimate and she has a headache or she's frustrated or something else is going on and she'll push him away. What he'll end up doing because he doesn't know how to manage his emotions is he will feel rejected and his rejected will either lead him to angry or withdraw and it's what he does afterwards. Once you can regulate your own emotions, it isn't about you. Uh, m- mature emotions, you can enter the emotional worlds of somebody else and you can care about what they're experiencing and you don't have to take it personally. It's the most freeing thing in the world once you get some um, freedom in being able to regulate and manage your emotions. So uh, this resource by Stephen Stanzny um, is a good one. There's tons of other ones out there, but it's simply about learning how to identify what the emotion is and then learning what you respond. It's being able to live out what you value in real time. What I value is I want it to be kind. I want to be gentle. I want to be compassionate. I want my wife and kids to know that I'm loving. But oftentimes when I'm overwhelmed emotionally and I handle that in destructive ways, that's when I cause myself the chaos. When you can regulate your emotions, you can act in your own best values in the real moment because you know what to do with those emotions. The biggest barrier we have is most people are afraid of emotions and most people don't want to experience them. But it's learning that God didn't create them to punish us. He created that to put us in touch with what we should do. So so then you're in this situation I thought it was interesting. You said, you know, I want to be kind, compassionate, loving to this person. And yet I feel I'm in a, I'm in a situation where there's maybe, uh, uh, I'm starting to get angry because maybe they're attacking me. Is it knowing, okay, keeping focused on, I want to be loving, compassionate and kind to this person, even though they may be attacking me, you know, not even in your marriage relationship, but, but then, not allowing the anger to then come in and take control. Is that? Let me give you a personal example so you can put the pieces together. Um, my daughter, uh, she's like an amazing person. And one of the things we have in common is both of us have been to Ethiopia multiple times and we love going on mission trips to Ethiopia. One of the trips that we went on, she got bacteria in her blood. And when she got bacteria in her blood, she was hospitalized. And we asked the doctor a question. We said to him, what happens to kids in Ethiopia that get this bacteria in their blood? This doctor had like less um, emotional intelligence than um, the guy in Big Bang Theory, Sheldon. And what he says to her is they die. And then he started describing to her how they die. And he says, you start with the pain right in here and then it builds. And then all of a sudden it just explodes and you die from the inside out exploding and he kept talking and the more he was talking the more my daughter was getting heightened and I finally stopped looking at him and I looked at her and I could see this so I thanked him for meeting with us and so we got the perfect guy on the job for bacteria and then after he left my daughter said this to me she said to me dad um, the reason I'm in the hospital is because you were cheap and you did not want to get the shots Everything inside of me would never want to hear my daughter telling me that I didn't protect her, that I did something that endangered her. 
Okay. 10 years ago, what I would have done is I would have said, Hey, that is not uh, appropriate for you to say to me, or how dare you talk to me like that or deny or dismiss what she said. Okay. Um, what I did at that moment was I was able to process what was going on inside of her and listen to her longings. I was able to understand what was going on. And then I was able to act in my best interest. She said to me, the next sentence was, dad, I don't want you to spend the night. And what was happening is my wife would spend one night in the hospital. I'd spend the next night in the hospital. So my daughter says to me, the reason I have this is because you didn't protect me. And I don't want you to spend the night here tonight. I could have gotten angry. I could have gotten frustrated. And all that would have ever done is made it worse. So here's what I did is I went, knowing how to regulate my own emotions, what I did is I said, tell me more about that kid. And I started listening to what she said. And I said, what does it feel like to be feeling so vulnerable? Okay, she's telling me something that I would never want to hear when I moved into it. And this is what happened. It's so cool. She goes, you know, dad, what I'm really feeling is fear. And I know that you would never put me in, in a dangerous situation, but what I'm feeling is being overwhelmed and scared. And I said, so am I, kid. And she reached out her hands and she goes, I love you, daddy. And I want you to spend the night. And I walked out of the hotel room, literally, and I was going down the hall. They probably thought I was crazy. But what happened was that instead of making it about me and proving to her that she had no right to feel that about me, I was able to stay in my own emotions and connect with her heart at the moment. I was able to become the man I've always wanted to be. And what I needed was to be able to manage my own emotions before I could do that. See, what ends up happening to us so many times in situations is somebody's telling us something and instead of listening to what they're going through, understanding what's going on in their heart, we are proving to them that that is not true. We didn't do it. If I would have done that, I would have been at home by myself that night. And my daughter would probably be thinking, man, my dad's a jerk. But what you do in the heat of the moment where instead of denying and dismissing and proving they have no right to feel that way, connecting with it changes everything. Well, it sounds like uh, when you talk about connecting with the heart of the other person, it's connecting with their emotions, their, yeah, she Desires. said. Yeah. It's connecting with their fears. It's connecting with what they experienced at the moment. It's connecting with what's going on inside them. It's really all about them. That's why I say to myself all the time. It's all about them until I make it about me. And then it will become all about me. Because really, didn't my daughter have a right to feel fear? Didn't she have a right to express what was going on inside of her. She didn't know what it was. She had this feeling of, she had the exact same pain this guy's describing and she's sitting in the hospital with tubes in her and all these emotions are going on. And, and see, if I can't regulate my emotions, then I can't be around her to experience hers, especially if it's something 
that I would not want to hear or feel. And, but see, once I've learned how to manage my own emotions, then I can be present with hers in there. Um, this wasn't something that took me a week to learn or even a month. Um, but man, I'm telling you, being able to manage your own emotions is one of the coolest skills you can ever learn. So what's the difference between managing your emotions and suppressing your emotions? Let's say you've got anger or something. Obviously, you don't want to express that anger. Mm -hmm. um, is there, is there, you know, as opposed to suppressing it? And, and suppressing it is just pushing it inside and then watching it come out sideways on everyone else. Uh, managing means that you've actually dealt with the emotion and you've actually responded in the way that God intended you to. Suppressing the emotion means you don't experience, you deny it, you push it away, and then it'll come out sideways. It'll come out with someone else with your bitterness, with your resentment, with your anger, with your treating the cat wrong. It's with the uh, often ends up happening to us is we get to experience the suppressed emotions of the people we care the most about. And we don't even know. We just There's people that are like the helpless victim that all of a sudden somebody just unleashes something on. When you suppress it, you don't deal with it. You just push it in or you ignore it or you pretend like it didn't happen or you don't have to deal with it. I don't encourage people to suppress it, but I don't encourage people to sit with it forever either. Uh, an emotion... Um, is something that can be experienced. Uh, but for me, I had to identify what they even were. I had to know that when I felt rejected, what I did is I would pull away or I would get angry. And neither one of those got me anything I wanted. So, so how, would you, how would you address that question when you feel rejected? How do you process that and make, come out of that in a positive way? I'll show you because I'm a visual person. Uh, give me one second. Um, here is something that I learned and I had to develop because I'm slow um, at learning things like this. Um, I have a book that kind of has charts and stuff that I've developed over time that helped me with responding in a way and there's one in particular I, I call it the six practical things that you can do and what it is is I had to learn how to feel what I wanted to do and then I had to learn how to do what I should do and once I got this and then I memorized it and it took me a while to figure it out and I'm telling you I was like very incapable of processing my emotions if you talked to me 15 years ago you would go man this guy doesn't even know what he's doing but for example if you ever want to harm and punish if you want to cause pain or say something cutting or harsh or mean what i had to learn was that when i was in touch with my emotions when i was living out my values that i had to learn how to protect i had to learn how to control my words my actions and keep people from harm when something inside of me wanted to punish or, or cause harm, um, and, and what was going on inside of me was I was so in emotional turmoil that I just wanted to make it stop. And I had, whatever you learn as a kid, you sophisticate as an adult. Let me give you some more. Whenever you want to withdraw, whenever you feel like you need to defend yourself or pull away, do something to connect. Intentionally move towards them. Accept their apologies or move towards them. Whenever you want to give up, 
whenever you want to quit, whenever you want to just uh, cast it aside, do something small to improve the relationship. This is something that's so powerful. If you don't believe me, next time you get in an argument with your spouse or with your kid or an employee or somebody else, and then you go in the other room and you start telling yourself they did this and they said that, this was awful. The more that you do that, the more worked up you will get, the more miserable you will become. The second you start working on yourself, you will start feeling better immediately. As soon as you start going, okay, here's what I need to do. Whenever you want to give up, start doing something to improve the relationship. Learn some more skills. Figure out how to respond differently. If you want to blame, um, then that's a great opportunity to forgive. Um, I think forgiveness is God's gracious gift that he gives us to uncouple ourselves from the people that hurt us. Whenever I blame, I render myself helpless and make myself miserable and guarantee to carry the misery into the future. But when I forgive, I can release. Um, you have to maintain so much bitterness, resentment, and anger to stay mad at someone. And the reason we do that is because it justifies our own bad behavior. And then the last one is whenever you want to be silent, whenever you feel like stopping, whenever you want to do that, really it's about understanding. And so I would say it's to learn how to take the high road and the, the biblical place that I put this is Jesus said, do unto others the way that you would have them do unto you. And he also says it multiple times that we need to treat people the way God treated us. And living out your values is about learning to connect with the best thing you can do to respond to someone else and treat people the way God does. And the high road is what would honor God. And the low road is what's going to cause me misery. And it's what is going to undermine my relationships. But learning how to do that in real time takes the ability to be able to manage your emotions. For me, I had to write it down and I'd have to say, okay, when I feel like giving up, I have to learn how to do something small to make the relationship better. When I'm in a situation where I want to say something cutting or harsh or to my wife, I have to learn how to protect her in those moments. I have to learn how to, to what am I feeling so that I know what to do. Uh, and I literally would write it down when you're rejection, when, when I feel rejected, I have to keep from withdrawing, I have to keep from pulling away, and I have to do something to uh, improve the relationship. I have to do something where I care about what it was that was going on inside of them. You will feel good in direct proportion to how you live out who God made you to be. And what will make you feel good about yourself isn't pretending like you're a really good person. It's actually living it out in real time. Mm. Wow. No, this, this is great. Um, let, let me just explore. I mean, I, I felt like marriage and family, you're the tightest, closest relationships. And, uh, you know, it kind of brings to the surface who we really are, where we're really at. And I, then I look at the breakdown of family and marriage and in society. I mean, you, you came, I think you said your father, uh, your parents, you know, you had difficulties in your upbringing. What happens to an individual uh, when marriage and family break down, either divorce or, or whatever? Um, it just strikes me that, you know, something's 
some things get deeply embedded in an individual's lives that you don't have necessarily if, and you know, if your parents stay together, doesn't mean you're going to be perfect either, but it probably increases the likelihood you're not going to be dealing with certain things. Um, what maybe explore a little bit how you see that affecting individuals and the importance of parents working it out for themselves and for their kids. Um, there's two things. Um, I'll talk about one for a second and then I'll talk about the other. One of them is that most uh, relationships have to do with bonding, with uh, being connected, um, with trust. The first one that has to do is trust. In order to experience a really healthy relationship, I would argue that the only way that you can get to intimacy is through trust and vulnerability. And the only atmosphere that provides a safe environment for trust and vulnerability is commitment and self-sacrifice. The way that God lays out relationships. In fact, I remember 20 some years ago reading Genesis chapter two, which is the foundational passage for relationships in the Bible. And I remember being so stupid that I actually said out loud that I can't believe this is all that God has. Now, after studying it and immersing myself in it for 20 years, I'm like, oh my goodness, did God have some really cool stuff. Commitment is, uh, I'm in this no matter what, and self-sacrifice is I care more about you than I care about me. I care more about us than I care about me. And those two are the things that build a foundation to where you can have trust and vulnerability and get the intimacy. Oftentimes what happens in relationships is there's a breach of trust. Most people don't know how to repair trust and most people have conversations that increase the level of distrust. For example, somebody does something that hurts the other person instead of them caring and understanding and have compassion over it, they prove that they didn't do it. For example, this is an extreme case, but a couple has an affair. The person that had the affair doesn't know how to accept that they did something wrong, that they did something devastating, and they get upset at the other person. How dare you keep bringing this up? I already said I was wrong. I already said that I was sorry. You need to forgive me now. You cannot repair a relationship by proving to the other person you didn't do anything wrong. In order to reestablish trust, there has to be genuine repentance. There has to be compassion. And a person who is safe to move back into that situation, has compassion over them and is willing to allow them the time to heal before they press it back in. Uh, oftentimes people don't know how to navigate those breaches of trust. And I would argue that until you repair the trust, that vulnerability is impossible. A person cannot be vulnerable with someone who they don't trust. So the foundation of relationships is commitment and self-sacrifice. And the way that you get to intimacy is through trust and vulnerability. And that's part of what happens. What happens in a lot of relationships is people don't know how to trust people and they end up sabotaging the relationship. Some people do it by jealousy or control or by pulling away and it's about attachments. Um, that's the first one. The second one I think has to do with connection. This is what I think most arguments are actually about. Most arguments are really uh, about trying to connect. Let me kind of slow down a little bit. Uh, if you think about what causes so much friction in relationships, it's people have strongly held opinions, unique personalities, personal preferences, and the family they grew up in. 
you add uh, gender differences and the fact that we're all sinful, selfish, broken people. The connection that you have is the oil that lubricates the relationship. That's what makes it possible to experience what your heart longs for. Most arguments are actually unsuccessful protests over emotional discontent, disconnection. And most arguments are attempt to connect. In order to solve the problem, we must address the central need for connection and the desperate fear of losing it. Disconnection and emotional isolation are the real problem. The longer the disconnection remains, the more destructive our interactions become, the more insecure we feel. What we want is to have the people in our lives available and receptive to us. What we want them is to celebrate our victories, comfort our defeats. We want to be known, loved, valued, and respected. Um, we want to be encouraged, challenged, and comforted. We want, when we sense that that connection is slipping away and the person is no longer available and, and receptive to us, we get completely overwhelmed emotionally. Here's what I know. We communicate well when we're connected and poorly when we lose connection. When you lose connection, closeness fades, conflict increases, negative feelings take over. When you're connected, life is fun. You get, you give each other the benefit of the doubt. You can clarify, you can re redirect when you say something incorrectly. If disconnection is the problem and connection is the solution, uh, then what is it that we need to either reestablish the connection or to, to get it um, so that it's functioning well to begin with? So basically what I would say is that it's about trust and it's about connection. If we don't have trust, we have to repair it. If we don't have connection, we either have to establish it or repair it. Am I making any sense? Yeah, how, how do you develop practically, give it practical examples of developing trust? And when it, how do you know it's, I guess you, you alluded to things which would indicate it's not there. Um, but what do you do to uh, build trust in the relationship? Um, what you have to do is you have to become a safe person. And a safe person is someone who, uh, stops defending themselves, someone who has empathy and compassion for what the other person has experienced and how painful it was. A person has an affair um, and I keep telling them to get over it, I'm not a safe person. Uh, if I've had a breach of trust, I can't demand it, I have to earn it. Uh, it's, it's such a weird thing is that it takes about a second to lose trust and it takes a lifetime ultimately to build it uh and you can rebuild trust but the the best way to determine what a person is likely to do is what they've been doing for the last six to nine months and in order for me to repair trust then i have to have the kind of behavior that is predictable reliable and trustworthy over a period of time if I'm kind and caring and loving and supportive and I continue to do that for six months, then my partner or whoever I've caused pain with and whoever doesn't trust me will likely start to trust me. It takes patiently understanding and caring about that. It takes, um, if I could get it down to two criteria is that they understand at the depth of how bad they hurt someone and they have empathy and compassion for how deeply they wounded them. 
that's the best criteria to determine if somebody can be trusted or not. And the way that you rebuild trust is you have to take ownership for what you did and you have to change the behavior. If there was a breach in the relationship and you had an affair, you can't just say, I'm sorry. You have to understand what was it that was going on inside of me that caused me to act outside of my marriage? And how have I changed so that the person can trust me? That's where you're doing the work and you're revealing it to your partner. I've experienced some really cool um, breakthroughs with people who have had breaches of trust, but it has to be about the person that did the hurt cares about them. Uh, here's how most of it happens, okay? Person says what they did to hurt them, they say, I'm sorry, and then they start to develop what that really meant, and then the person says, hey, you need to get over it. I've already apologized. Or, uh, you know, it wasn't all me. In fact, the reason I got that way is because of what you were doing, you weren't listening to me. And then, so, so either one of those strategies of not taking ownership or blaming the other person, all that does is like take a scab, rip the scab off and pour salt in the wound. And imagine having 20 conversations where you talk at each other about something that was really painful. I would say that there's like seven steps in a productive conversation uh, the first step is tell me more about that. Now I get to understand what's really going on. And after I start to understand, then I get to really develop what it was that it cost you and what it was that you lost, how much pain you experienced. And then I get to pour compassion over that. And probably about stage six is when I get to tell you what I was thinking, what I was asking. See, uh, it, in order for you to be safe and be predictable, the person has to trust that you're not going to do it again. And there has to be a change in behavior and there has to be tangible evidence that they can trust that you've made the change. And telling them that you're sorry isn't enough. It doesn't work. And what ends up happening is people that have caused the other person to feel like the person that I trusted is now the enemy that has hurt me. You don't take a person that's uh, you feel like they're the enemy and they make a sentence to you of what they said and did and then everything's better. It doesn't work that way. So much of the relationships work is you have to repair the trust and you have to be able to increase the vulnerability. And it's a complicated process that you can work through. And what I would say is that the person that was hurt loses the ability to trust their own ability to assess it because they didn't see it coming and they don't trust that they can actually assess people accurately and i part of it is learning how to assess the probability of risk if i take this step am i going to get completely damaged again and what happens to a person that can't trust they're always constantly assessing everything to determine the risk and they're terrified one of the things that happened to me is because my mom and dad got divorced and my dad left, I was in a place where I didn't know how to trust. So I had to learn how to trust an actual person. If you don't know how to trust a person, you can't be vulnerable. And if you can't be vulnerable, you can't experience intimacy. Um, who would have known that my mom and dad's divorce would be the avenue that would teach me how to learn how to trust people? God says that he's able to work together to good for those that love him. 
That's one of the examples of how he's done it in my life. Because I know what it's like not to be able to trust anyone. And I know what it's like to trust people. And I'm telling you, it is a lot better to trust. So it really starts with yourself taking ownership, taking responsibility for doing. I know uh, you, you have a course called Reengage, And one of the things you've said is you draw a circle around yourself and you only deal with people inside the circle. Draw a circle on yourself and you work on every single person inside the circle. Right. Uh, how, how about connection, the other side? What do you do practically examples to maybe to connect better? I think that there are six things that you can do that are super powerful to building connection. One is to uh, play together, have fun, and create memories. That's the first one. Uh, there's something about just doing stuff that are fun. People do it naturally and, and intuitively when they're dating. That's one of the best ways people get to build it, but they forget to do that. Uh, couples, especially that play together, end up staying together. Um, here's another one is choose positive thoughts. Uh, our thoughts are um, not random. Most people think that they just happen to you. But I have learned over time that if you have a negative thought, negative thought, negative thought, negative thought, the next thought's going to be negative. And what happens to people who are in difficult relationships is they start thinking about all the things that the person did that's bad and it's off. And one of the best ways that you can restore connection is to start thinking positive thoughts. And what I encourage people often to do is make a ongoing list of some of the positive attributes, the good characteristics of your spouse so that you can think of that. If you do this, if you go in the other room and you think about, man, they're kind, man, they're an awesome mom, man, they are a wonderful dad, they are empathetic, they are a hard worker, and you start listing those off, that will start to change your patterns. Doesn't mean that you ignore the other stuff, it just means that you also put in your mind positive thoughts. The way the Bible says it is think on what is pure, what is good, what is uh, honorable, what is gentle. Those are the kind of things in Philippians that talk about that. Um, complete conversations. Uh, oftentimes what happens to couples is they don't have the ability to complete conversations. And every time you have a conversation that has an unclosed loop, you have disconnection. But every time you have a conversation that successfully comes to a conclusion where both people are working together to solve the problem, it makes connection beyond words. Um, repair the damage you caused. Uh, also, this is super important, is learning how to receive other people's attempts. People make unsuccessful attempts to connect all the time and the other person doesn't know how to receive it. And I'm not saying that you have to completely feel better and everything is good. But once a person makes a connect, they reach out to you and you deny it. Uh, let me kind of tell you a story that helps me to really think of it. Um, I got to coach my son in baseball for tons and tons of years. And one particular year, he was on a holiday and all of the other dads that know how to play baseball uh, were gone. So there was, uh, the kids were all there and there was one dad in the stands and he said, hey, I'll come help. And so I was hitting fly balls out to the kids and they're 17 years of age and 17 year olds can throw the ball really hard. All of a sudden a baseball comes whizzing by my head and I was like, wow, that's weird. And then I started to pay attention and then I hit one and then I looked at the guy and the ball was coming to him. And when it came, he would run out of the way and then the ball would come whizzing by. And I realized that he did not know how to catch the ball. When people make an attempt to connect, 
and you miss it, it's actually more dangerous than a fastball coming by you because every single time a person makes the attempt to connect and you miss it, what you end, they end up sparing is, is rejection. People try to connect in so many ways. They try to apologize. They try to laugh. They try to say something that is a compliment. They try to move towards you. They try to invite you on a date. Most people are so frustrated, so angry, so upset, so hurt that they miss all of those things. And if you can just receive them by doing three things, one is acknowledging it, appreciating it. <laughs> it is powerful that, or accept it, okay? If you can just say, you know what? I don't feel completely better, but the fact that you apologized, that was unbelievable. People, um, whatever gets rewarded gets repeated. And whatever gets punished gets avoided. So the last thing to connect is to create a safe environment to where the person can trust your heart. Because the safer the environment is, and the more that they can trust your heart, the more that you can be connected. Mm -hmm. I'm passionate about that because most arguments are actually unsuccessful attempts to connect. And if you're connected, you can communicate anything and you give each other the benefit of the doubt. And that's what makes life so enjoyable. The way Peter says it this way is to love life and see good days. That's what we really want. And you, when you're connected, it's like you're having oil in your engine. And if you have oil in your engine, you can navigate the friction. And if you don't have oil in the engine, you can't navigate the friction. And what happens to couples when the connection is completely gone, it starts to be metal hitting metal. And then what I call divorce is the explosion of the engine. Um, boy, a lot of potential directions. Um, what, what You mentioned affairs a number of times. What's going on there, do you think, primarily? Why do people have affairs? Or is that a complicated question or is it pretty straightforward? Uh, it's complicated and it's always different, but oftentimes it starts with disconnection over time and a person longing for somebody else to see them in a different way. Oftentimes for guys, because uh, I take time to unpack it and how did you get to that place? Often is they're having arguments and fights and, and what's really going on is they feel like a failure and they feel inadequate and their spouse constantly tells them that they suck. At least that's what they hear them say. And then they find someone else that respects them, appreciates them, feeds into that intern longing. And I think that all sin is just taking a legitimate longing and finding an illegitimate way of fulfilling it. And what ends up happening is somebody else starts to feel that longing and they don't have to feel like a failure and it becomes that. I, I have not yet, and I've talked to lots of people who had an affair because of sex. Uh, it always starts with the lunch, with the conversation, with spending time together and then ultimately moves towards that. Um, so it's about the deeper fears, the deeper longings, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, this, may, this is a little bit different question. All the things you've described about intimacy, connection, trust, 
with our spouse. How does that apply to God? I mean, marriage is a reflection of our relationship with God. How could we apply that to our relationship with God? Uh, you're so right, because it's the same exact thing. And it's interesting to me that um, the words for belief, faith, and trust are the same word in Greek. And so much of what everything we do in our relationship with God is about trusting him. And ultimately, what God is doing, saying, I never leave you, I'll never forsake you, it's this promise um, that just gives it to he that he continually gives to us. God's character is faithful, and God presents himself as someone who can be trusted in all of his actions. When you think about a God that in every single action provides self-trustworthy, this is the weirdest thing. One of the things that was hard for me was because my dad lived is that I had this fear that God would leave. And eternity, eternity used to be a terrifying topic to me because I would think and in my mind when I'd let myself go there is what happens after a thousand years if God gets tired of me and he just leaves or he just is tired of, of all of that stuff. And it wasn't until I learned how to trust other people that I could apply that same trust to God. Now, knowing that God will be there and he will not ever leave and he will not ever forsake me. Uh, intimacy is ultimately what God wants. If, if you go through the Old Testament, you look at all of the different pictures and you get to see the tabernacle and you get to see the temple and you get to see all the stuff. You get to see how God wanted to have intimate fellowship with his creation and he designed them to it. And we did something that breached the trust. We broke the relationship. And all eternity is when God once and for all deals with evil. And when you get to see this cool picture of heaven and it's like this cube and it's all, I think it has to do with like the holy of holies and it's the temple and it's God's presence here on earth with us with unfettered intimacy and that's what it's all about and you have to get rid of evil in order to experience the kind of intimacy that god desires so i could kind of get excited about that i did a series on revelation and by the time i came to revelation 21 and 22 talking about no more tears no more pain no more heartache where every single person there is there because they want to be there and the relationship where God himself dwells with people without any evil throughout eternity, man, that is a compelling vision of what one day will be. But I think for a lot of people, the relationship with God has to do that they don't trust him. Sin is literally about the idea that I'm going to have to figure this out on myself. You look at Adam and Eve and from the very beginning, that's what happened. And sin causes hiding, causes blaming, and <laughs> causes shame, which are the three things that absolutely undermine every single relationship. So how do we develop that trust? He's trustworthy, but we're not sure sometimes. I think part of it is learning how to see how he acts towards us in real time. Um, that same counselor I was telling you about earlier also um, helped me with something else. And what he helped me out with was how do you like add life experience to what it is you're going through that you can see things slightly different. 
And I think what we have to learn how to do is we have to, for me, it's keeping track of what God does and how many times he's present in us. And then we get to see how he lived, how he responded here and how he was faithful and how he could be trusted and how he will be throughout eternity. Um, part of it is beyond that. It's learning to see that God, Tim Keller has a quote that just, it is profoundly impacted me is that God does what we would do if we had access to all the information he has. And oftentimes what happens to us is when we suffer or when we experience difficulty and we experience pain, we run it through the filter of this is not how I would act. This is not what I would do. And since I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't act this way and God did it. He must not care about me. He must not really about me. When in fact, what God does is not just for my best interest, but it's for the best interest of the entire human race. What God does isn't just for my temporary, it's for my ultimate. God is not just interested in me being comfortable and me being happy immediately, which are our highest goals. Most of us, our highest goals is I want to be happy and I want to be comfortable. I want to do whatever I want and I want to enjoy it in the moment. Um, oftentimes God uh, has longer range goals for us. God has a bigger thing where he's interested in developing our character and bringing us to the place of ultimate enjoyment, not just temporary satisfaction. Uh, sin often promises us these incredible things, but it almost never delivers. In fact, I would argue it never delivers. What God does doesn't look great in the moment, but once you start moving down that road, you get to experience what he had in mind for you all along. Stuff like faithfulness. Um, let's take it to marriage. Our culture thinks of it this way, is that you find someone who meet your needs and you marry them. When they don't meet your needs, you criticize them. And when they continue not to meet your needs, you find someone else. What God says is, no, I'm the only one that can meet your needs. And what I want you to do is I want you to come to me and allow me to meet your needs so that you can be a conduit to meet your spouse's needs. Something that's profoundly different in that when I operate in a way that I'm a conduit to meet my spouse's needs instead of she's there to meet all of mine, I call a relationship where you are going to someone to get all your needs met as a parasitical relationship. It's like a tick and a dog. Some relationships are like two ticks and no dog where there's people just sucking the life out of each other ultimately god is the most kind gracious faithful strong humble being on the universe and he ultimately has our best interest at heart and it's learning how to trust in his character and in his actions and when you get to see those pieces fitting together Sometimes it's hard for people, and some people have experienced real significant loss, and people have experienced suffering. Um, I've, I've worked with people that have experienced extreme suffering, and just because you've experienced that doesn't mean that you have to distrust God. You get to choose. You get to choose, am I going to see who you are and what you ultimately want, or am I going to see what I didn't get and how miserable it's made me become. I've also learned that my role when I work with somebody who's suffering is just to care about how difficult it 
us and be a really good listener and be emotionally present. I don't ever talk to a person that suffered by telling them what to think or believe or feel. I just am present with them and care about them. I think Job's friends did a great job for the first week. <laughs> they just sat with Job and listened. It was only when they started telling him that it was his fault or it was God's fault that things got really weird. Hmm. That's well, complicated. Yeah. And it, it's something that takes time. For me, uh, personally, um, I used to try to perform to please God. And the more I tried to perform, the more miserable I was. But it wasn't until I learned that God is my daddy and I get to crawl up in his arms and that he cares about me that changed everything. And for me, the coolest journey that I've experienced in this lifetime so far is the journey from a performing, um, trying to garner God's attention. That's who I used to be. I used to be a, a indentured servant and now I'm a dearly loved son. And knowing that God loves me and that he longs to give stuff to me, there's a couple passages where Jesus talks about prayer. And one of them in particular is where um, a guy is there in, in the text. It says that it was his audacity that is what God was looking for. And what it was getting at is that God wants us to have the audacity to know that we're his dearly loved children. And that's what prayer is about. Prayer is different when I'm asking my dad who can't, can't wait to give it as opposed to this widow that you persistently have to get to the, the um, guy that doesn't care. He's comparing and contrasting between a judge who could care less and this widow that has no other options. And it, it isn't about this is what God's like. You have to just wear him down and eventually he'll give you what you want. He's like, no, so much more the God that loves you. He's comparing him that the God that longs to, and I can imagine God looking down from heaven saying, man, I can't wait to. And that changes everything. Mm. Oh, that's great. Well, we have to uh, close it here, but there's a lot of topics I didn't even get to. But uh, is there anything kind of concluding remarks to kind of tie it all together from your standpoint that you'd want to leave with people? I would leave it this way is that whatever state you find your relationship in, it can get a lot better. And that the best strategy for you to employ is to figure out what is your part in the chaos and what can I learn to make things better? Um, the cool thing that we have is that God's in favor of marriage and he wants to do everything to make them better. And if we allow him in on the journey, everything can be different. Cool. well great well thank you uh thank you bob for your time and uh i look forward to having other discussions with you about different aspects of marriage and what uh, we can do in the church what the church the body of christ can do to help support and strengthen marriages so thank you for your time uh, thanks, Tom. I so appreciate someone that just passionately uh, wants to make marriages better and has such a cool gift to be able to connect people. Thank you. Bye-bye. Look forward to talking to you again. Okay. Thank you. We'll, we'll be in contact. Okay.